Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Nil Zacharias and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. Kelly Coffin, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Thank you for having me, Neil. Where did you grow up, Kelly? I was uh, I was raised in a little town in northern Vermont called Cabot, Cabot, Vermont. And uh, from what I've read, it seems like you grew up uh, in a on a dairy farm, or your family was involved in the dairy business. I I did. I um, you know, there's a there's a famous little creamery. I guess it's not little anymore, um, but there's a famous creamery in Cabot, Vermont called Cabot Creamery. And um, my great, great grandfather was actually one of the founding members of what then was the Cabot Farmers Cooperative. I actually still have some of the financial records from the late 1800s um, on Cabot Creamery. And uh, I was raised, uh, uh, we had a farm up on a place back row called um, Cabot Plains. That's kind of interesting, given what you're doing now. But um, do, is your family still involved in uh, in any way in the dairy business? Um, how was that experience like having grown around um, that that part of the country? You know, if you it, probably as far back in my um, uh, my family as you could go, uh, you'll find that we were in some way engaged in in dairy, particularly on my my mom's uh, my mother's side of the family. Uh, in fact, we have we still have somewhere some of the old stamps that they used um, uh, at Cabot Creamery to make some of the butter there, uh, some of the Rosedale stamps. Um, so it goes, it's deeply, deeply rooted. Um, I have some that are, some family that are still on the periphery of it there, out delivering milk and, and such things, but... Um, uh, widely, we've all kind of drifted off in our own ways, and I am certainly the the outlier there, um, given <laughs> given what we're doing today. <laughs> and what was food? Uh, what was the food you were eating growing up? What's what typical? What was the food typically cooked at home, or what you grew <laughs> as a yeah? What you ate of, as a child? Yeah, it was it was all cooked at home. Uh, a lot of you know, there were many times, especially in the winter, you just couldn't get out to to um, go and eat all the time. You you had to cook there at home. You were bound to the farm, uh, either by the cows or by the weather or something, or maybe by the mud and the ruts and whatnot. But there was a lot of uh, everything we had was home cooked. My mom, interestingly, who I'm, I'm so grateful 
for uh, she was deeply, deeply vested in our health and well-being uh, before I even knew what health and well-being was. She was deeply vested in that when I was a child. And uh, interestingly, I even remember her like uh, limiting my intake of cheese and milk and whatnot back in back in those days when I was young. Isn't it funny how in some ways we sort of know intuitively uh, some of these uh, foods are not necessarily the best, uh, or at least if consumed, have to be consumed in moderation, uh, yet we accept them to be culturally the norm? <laughs> yeah, I, I remember, I remember um, at a young age when I was in grade school, you know, most of the most of my friends used to they used to be able to get any kind of food they wanted. And I remember they'd bring candy bars and potato chips and things like that to school. And I was always a little embarrassed that we didn't get to have that. We'd have, I remember distinctly like molasses cookies and things like that, that I didn't care much for because I wanted the Twinkies and the Snickers bars. And, and um, so I learned early on that I was, even though I didn't like them, others did. So I would end up touting the benefits of the molasses cookies and trading them out so that I could have my uh, fair share of junk food, even at that age. And, uh, you know, it, it wasn't long when I finally learned the effects of that on me that I discarded that habit. Uh, but uh, it was a, it was very interesting world we grew up in there. Wow, that's fascinating. And um, from a education and professional standpoint, what, what did what what career did you embark on? Mm. Um, sure. Yeah. I well, I, I graduated um, um, from uh, in a town called Hardwick, Vermont, Hazen Union High School. I ended up uh, going into uh, interestingly enough forestry. You know, when you're when you're raised on a dairy farm, you're going to have to augment your income stream with something back in those days. So we were always doing something like, you know, forestry, forest management, um, some kind of construction trades, things like that in the spare time. And there wasn't a lot of spare time. Uh, but I, I ended up ultimately moving to Montana to pursue, pursue a pathway in forestry really because it was what I'd known at that time. Uh, with that, I soon diverged, uh, got into, uh, you know, I built, started building um, little ventures and whatnot, companies, and, and got into the construction trade. Um, it, this was long before I got into the food industry and the various technologies that we have. So tell us about food then, not so much from a standpoint of your own personal consumption, but when did food, uh, and maybe it started with your own personal consumption, but when did food start to enter your life in a, in a bigger way from a standpoint of uh, taking an interest in potentially uh, entering the business of food? Uh, what, what sparked that start for you? Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, there were a couple things. There was... Um, uh, one, my dad got cancer. You know, he he had uh, prostate cancer that eventually would metastasize to his spine. And I was by this time, by the time he came around, I was in the, er, the but that this happened. I was in actually in the real estate and the land business, had a successful land business. And um, 
uh, my daughter got sick at the same time. And I had a man that was working for me who interestingly was a, um, he was a Seventh-day Adventist and he talked to me about spirituality and the fact that um, you could not separate the spiritual from the physical well-being. And that really struck a chord with me with what my dad was going through. He was a physician and in spending time with him, he made a few suggestions, a few very simple suggestions to help my dad. And we were shocked with the results. He, he, he made some suggestions on some changes that we needed to make, the primary ones being dietary. We, and then he made some predictions as that we would, we could expect to see if we followed that course. We did follow that course. His predictions were incredibly accurate. He was usually ahead of schedule on his time frame that he would predict to us. Um, my dad ended up walking away from the cancer. He beat the cancer. Um, and then during that time, my little girl, who meant the world to my wife and I, she began having some, some health issues. And the same, same person offered the same advice. And he said, you make the same application to this child. And she was two years old at the time, said, you make the same application to that child and you're going to see the same effects on that which concerns her. We made the same application, saw the same um, uh, results. And during that time, I was, I was, I was really um, brought to a place where I had to change because of the two of them. It, it, you know, we had to change the way we ate and through just his simple inputs, uh, it really transformed not only our eating, but our thinking, which transformed the eating even further and ultimately led to where we are today. That's a long answer to a short question. You know, first and foremost, I, I can't imagine having to go through both the illness from the standpoint of your your own father as well as your own child around the same time frame that that, that must have been obviously a significant emotional mental toll on on you and your family and and maybe tell us a little bit more about what the advice was because it it sounds like I think anyone listening to this is now going to want to know yeah what, was, what did you learn that they should learn <laughs> yeah well first dad, dad my dad was uh, probably one of the most studied men that I know he was incredibly analytical. And I mean, so he was, uh, if you were going to convince somebody of something, he was, um, he was usually the last that you'd convince. You would have to work the hardest on him and you would, you would have to provide, uh, evidence and much of it experiential <laughs> evidence to, <laughs> to get him to even sway. So, um, the, the advice we got, was compelling. Um, and, and there was a lot, there was uh, a host of experience that was, that was, um, given during the, you know, with that advice. And then they turned me on. I'm sure you're familiar with Colin, uh, Campbell's book, the China study, but of course, yeah. he turned us on to Colin's book. And that was very compelling because for the first time, um, it had, uh, it, it, you know, that book cuts right through the gray matter and I'm a, uh, I love data and I loved what that book was presenting. 
and the evidence that that book was presenting. And as my dad, my dad would devour anything he read him. I think he read that book in an evening. Um, that was enough to convince him to do this, but or to get him get him close. But ultimately, I remember having the conversation with him because they told us you're not. The chances are very slim that you're going to make it out of this. This this is going to um, this will take your life unless you do one of two things. And and one was just the traditional road that that everyone seems to go. And the um, uh, the advice we got was so balanced. It was a very holistic approach, but it didn't just uh, throw science to the wolves either. It, you know, it's a very balanced approach. But I remember specifically them saying that, you know, this took him years to get into. He took, gave him a, a, there was a lifetime of of lifestyle, primarily lifestyle decisions that got you into this zone to my dad, mm -hmm. um, more so than hereditary or even cultivated uh, uh, factors. Um, so it was very interesting when he said that to us, but, but as a result, the advice was very simple. Number one, mega high fiber plant-based diet, uh, especially for my dad initially dealing with, with his condition, um, you know, cut back on, uh, you know, eliminate a lot of the fats and whatnot, a lot of the refined foods that were in his diet, get a, just a very whole high fiber plant-based diet. And then there was something else that was interesting. I remember distinctly, they gave him, um, in fact, we have an acronym for this, uh, uh, we call it New Start. <laughs> and um, that acronym, acronym stood for Nutrition, Exercise, Water, Sunshine, Temperance or, or Self-Control, Rest, Fresh Air, and um, uh, uh, trust. And, and my dad began to apply those things. I remember he began going outside. They told him, go out, get refractory sunshine in your retinas. Go out on sunny days. Get walking, deep breathing, uh, rest, you know, reading, doing, doing these things that will, that will begin to um, undo all of those poor decisions that you were making. And the top thing, and this is why I'm in the food business today, the top thing was nutrition. It was dealing with his diet. And we saw results. I mean, you could, you could uh, put it on a timeline. It was very interesting. And uh, it, it moved us to our core. You know, you, I've heard so many different stories of people coming to the same conclusion. Um, and the most compelling ones are always when you're, you're sort of out of options mm. and you, <laughs> this is an option. This is the, the, the sort of the solution you would have been least likely to consider in the beginning. But finally, you reach a point where you're, you know, you just cannot face the diagnosis that has been given in front of you yeah. and you cannot keep relying on traditional medicine. And you almost have nothing to lose to try something that seems as it seems so simple that it seems impossible that, that it will was, actually result in anything. That was our case. In fact, I was going to say the, the final straw uh, for him. I remember sitting with him late at night and I remember he was weeping. Um, he was a very brave man. 
Um, but this was really taking its toll on him. And he realized, I think what really bothered him is he, he became convinced that, that this was more the result of lifestyle decisions uh, that he'd made. You know, I remember my dad, he didn't just eat a steak. He ate it rare. He buttered it and uh, butter, you know, I mean, a lot of butter and salt and pepper, the whole nine yards. And it had to be a marbled steak. And he recognized um, that was a problem. And I remember saying to him, I said, Dad, that was then. This is now. We've got to move forward. And I remember him pointing um, down at his lower back when it had metastasized to his spine. And he said, yep. And I'm feeling that problem from back then right now. And I told him, and this was the clincher. I said, listen, because he was... He was trying to decide, which way do I go? And I said, Dad, for me, it's pretty simple. What do we have to lose? What do we have to lose? I mean, everything that we have been told to, the, to date so far, has, has we've seen the results of this. And now, now we need to take that, that leap, if you will, and, um, and we've got to follow through. And it's just a very practical walk. And that's one of the things I appreciate about, about what I would, I would term right food and, and good industry and whatnot, um, is that it involves, uh, it involves just practical, simple steps that make all the difference in the world. And once we got past that hurdle, he fully committed. And that's when we had the success. The, the, the other clencher, now the clencher, you know, that was it for him, but there were a few side effects, very positive consequences that came out of this, um, that, um, I don't often share. I mean, I need to share more, but I remember one night my wife and I were sitting, um, my, my little girl, our, our, our oldest daughter now she's, um, she's, um, grown up, but she, um, she was laying there and she was having, um, uh, just chronic ear infections issues. And we would always give her a big cup of milk, a sippy cup and whatnot, before she went to bed, she'd get one in the mornings and she was getting chronic ear infections, um, issues with her breathing. And she was laying there one night and she was just crying and whimpering and she was running a fever. And my wife was sitting on one side and I walk into the room and I sat down on the other side. And as I sat down, she was just crying and I put my hand on her forehead and I could feel her temperature. And it, somewhere within the next few minutes or so, she called out and she, she said, daddy, and very broken, she was very young, but she says, oh, um, like dad, mom, that feels better. And my wife said, what? What's wrong? <laughs> and she reached up. And she touched her earlobes. And I thought, what is that? And I reached down and I put my hands to her ears. And, and um, uh, without um, going further, both of her eardrums had ruptured that night. Mm. And I will tell you, as a parent, I wanted to scream. I wanted to cry. I wanted to yell. I wanted to fight. I wanted to give up. And I wanted to pray and I wanted to go just, I mean, it was just every emotion in the world 
when, when that took place. And right then, like you could set your clock to it, this same friend called. He, we were friends by then. He called <laughs> and he said, what's wrong? And I said, this is what's wrong. And he said to me, he said, you know what? Just apply the same rules. He said, if you remove that from her today, he said, I promise you, that will be the last time you have an issue with this. He said, don't worry. And he said to me, this was so encouraging. And I want to encourage anybody that's listening to this to persevere. Do not, don't give up on these things. Because I know there's a lot of people that are struggling um, probably with similar issues. But I'll never forget, he said to me, he said, um, he said, number one, you apply the same rules. And he says, I guarantee you're going to see the same effects. And he said, if you remove that element, that speak up full of milk, and he said, that will be the last time you ever deal with this. And then he, then with the capstone, he said, don't worry, her ears will heal and she'll be just fine. And you know what? <laughs> she hears every peep today. She's, you know. So that these were huge things for us. Yeah, and just for some context, which year was all of this happening? This was, was this was happening frame? in your dad. Yep, this was happening to late two thousand one, uh, early two thousand two. Wow. Okay. And so, did your entire? I'm assuming uh, the the so the story so it, it things changed, right? So the story ended <laughs> well for your uh, for your daughter. Obviously, your, oh, your dad avoided my... the worst. Um, yeah. So did your entire family get transformed because of these changes in diet? Yeah. So there's, there's a few things there and, um, uh, I apologize for rambling, but I'll tell you the, it, there were a few things there that were just so touching to us. Um, we were really grateful that, that this took place in the end. Number one, my dad, uh, my dad ended up, um, going on to have, we had another, uh, nine, 10 years with him best quality of life he'd ever had, hands down. I remember in 2003, I think it was 2003, my brother and I bought him a new chainsaw so that he could go out and clean up his wood lot and things like that at home. And he was, you know, here's an, he's, he's retired and whatnot at that point. My daughter never had another ear infection, not one, never. Um, her ears healed just fine. Um, and, uh, she, she, sometimes she hears too well, she hears everything. Um, but I'll tell you the one that really also touched my heart is I remember my mom, my mother was going through this whole ordeal with us, you know, she, so I had to, I developed a lot of foods that my parents could eat to keep my dad on the program. My dad was, he was a connoisseur. He loved good food and he had to have the very best foods and and um so i had to develop new things i had to you know create you name it we created everything from milk to steaks to you know, hot dogs and stuff for him to, to eat but my mother through this time was very quiet and now my mother had been stricken with multiple cirrhosis with ms uh, when i was born uh it hit her my grandparents actually had to raise me on the farm for the first um, five, six years of my life because my mom was so debilitated uh, by the MS. And I remember she always had, there were signs you could see, there were certain things. One day she couldn't feel in her arm. The next day she was stumbling. And there's all kinds of things that were always moving around there that we never understood. 
And I remember one in particular, she had a, a certain twitch to her neck. And it wasn't long, I'm going to say it was about around 2004, we're all sitting there and the focus is on dad and upon my daughter and upon making food and doing all of these things. And my mom quietly says, I have something to, I have something to run by you. And I said, what? She says, I'm not finding any of these effects anymore. And she says, you know, cause my mom made this change when we all did and mm -hmm. we never even thought of it. And for the first time it occurred to me, wait a minute, she's right. The twitch is gone. The numbness is gone. These, these issues are gone. Um, and, um, they they have not returned it was it was really an interesting time for us to go so all of this anyways now you can really see, you know see the context behind um how we ended up getting out of what we were doing and into something we'd never intended uh to do yeah so how did how did this these personal experiences this um, you know, seemingly miraculous transformations because of lifestyle changes, dietary changes. How did that eventually lead to you um, embarking on an effort to launch a food company that would, that now is, I'm assuming is became Wayfair. So tell us about the early days of taking those ideas and thinking about entering the, the business of food. That same man that offered the initial advice to me, and actually it wasn't just one, it was, there were several, but that same uh, physician that had offered that initial advice to me um, uh, told me, he said, listen, uh, he says, I'll make you another promise. He says, you're not going to be fulfilled and you're not going to be satisfied in your life if you continue the road you're on. He says, you've been gifted to go through an experience. And he said, um, uh, that has transformed your life. But he says, I want to, I want, I, I just want to recommend that you would think about it. I'd like you to consider that you've gone through this experience for the purpose of helping others. And he said, if you start looking at this, uh, you know, looking, um, at the, uh, the world out there, you're going to find there's a lot of people that are in this same boat and they have issues that are, um, uh, far more serious, some less than yours. Uh, but there's a lot of people you can help. And he says, and then he just said to me, he says, I'd almost guarantee you, you're not going to be satisfied unless you do something about it. And I remember I had a, a, a good friend. I was thinking about that. And it was funny. I went for about a year and I wasn't satisfied. And I realized uh, we've created, not only through this process, did we go through healing, um, but it bound our family, uh, far closer together, bound a lot of friends together. And, um, but through that time out of necessity, we developed a lot of foods just to feed our family. And I had a, um, uh, one experience one day in the kitchen that transformed my life. And I realized then that, uh, I need to disengage from what I'm doing and I've got to commit to this and build a platform that can, that many, many people can be the beneficiaries of, uh, just beyond my family. 
And and when did Wayfair start? What what year was that that this uh, you decided to f- start the company and and actually work on commercializing products? Yeah. So, um, well, really, it started in at our home and in our kitchen. <laughs> uh, you know, way back, you know, when my dad was there. But we we um, began to build the company, put our first products in the market in two thousand ten. Um, and and began developing the technologies. We have some very interesting proprietary technologies that we've built um, that we employ to to create our foods and whatnot. That all started. That process started in 2010. And and uh, if you could be a fly on the wall at that time, you'd probably laugh. And it's it's hard for me to believe that we've even made it here. I mean, I have napkins somewhere in file with pictures of like multiple blenders, like 30 blenders in a line trying to figure out how do we do this, you know? So it was very interesting. And what did you look at in terms of when you looked at the landscape in the year 2010, which was obviously very different than it is right now? um, Were you looking at uh, other products that existed in um, in the categories that you were exploring and were you looking to create something that was differentiated how did you approach the market i'm curious because you know here we are 2022 everyone's talking about plant-based and you know say the non or the dairy-free category itself whether it's cheeses or or milks or yogurts or butters um it have a pretty saturated one would say right i know it's still fairly early in the growth of this industry but there's there's so many brands there's new ones launching every few uh every few months it seems like yeah but back then they probably were just a handful um yeah tell me what analysis you went through or were you just ignoring all of that and just doing what you thought was right because you'd played around it with it for almost a decade at that point we really weren't looking much at the market we we looked more at the need people had out there and and even more importantly um, the need that exists and still does today where people don't even realize um, the effects that a plant-based diet can have on themselves and their families. Um, that's really, that was our focus. It was, a, it, was, it was the mission field, if you will, for us. We just said, we've, we've got to take this and we've got to do something about it. And I couldn't sleep um, until we'd, we'd done that. Um, when we started, there really weren't many people out there. There were only a few products and frankly, most of them were really the beginnings of what most of the market is today. Just, uh, you know, texturing agents, some, you know, our, our, first you have to understand how we built our platform is wholly different than, than even most of what's even out there today. We, we wanted whole nutritious plant-based ingredients. We wanted as much plant and plant fiber and whole nutrients in our product as we could get. At that day, there really wasn't much of anything out there. Um, so we were pioneering it in many regards. And I, I can't tell you the looks we got, the People that said we're crazy. We had people that got really, really excited about the products, and we had people that that spit them out. I mean, there was we went through every hurdle you could imagine um, trying to understand the market and um, and follow a course that we knew was right, 
without even having any of the data to substantiate our position. And were you looking initially uh, purely at the dairy-free category? Was there any reason for that? Were you not, <laughs> or did you explore plant-based meats as an option? No, then? we've we, we've made. In fact, we have a whole portfolio of plant-based meats um, that we have created. They're they're in NPD files right now, and I'm hoping that soon we can we can jump into that arena as well with whole plant meats and and whatnot. we've got all kinds of different things that we created on the way but we decided we would focus on the dairy category not the non-dairy um, mm -hmm. we wanted to focus on the dairy category and um the, and to this day that is still our focus when we do uh when we are doing sensory tests and whatnot we don't we don't compare against non-dairy we're going after the dairy and um we still hold that line today that's why and I, that's why i feel like our products are are one of the primary reasons our products are probably as close to that as you can get um uh it's just a it's a it was a different line of thinking now then and i'm realizing every day that it's a it's a different line of thinking even now as the as the category moves forward so for those listening that maybe have never tried one of one of your products or, or probably just hearing about Wayfair for the first time, uh, somehow you've flown under their radar over the last decade. Um, how would you describe your product portfolio uh, as well as your uh, approach to product development, like in terms of what makes it unique and nutritious and uh, stand apart from everything in the dairy and non-dairy category? Gotcha. Yeah, I'll, I'll tackle the second part of the question first. Um, uh, ours are unique in, in several ways. Number one, we set out to create a technology that we could use to take whole plants, and I mean whole tough plants like beans and grains and seeds and things like these, and um, put the whole uh, plant in as an ingredient. And we developed a technology that would allow us to do that without having to just use texturing agents and, um, and ice, you know, ingredient isolates and things like that. Plant isolates, I should say, you know, protein isolates and what have you. Um, we wanted to build products that didn't have a lot of added oils, added fats, added sugars, you know, um, and, and once, frankly, the, the aha moment came with my, um, my, my youngest daughter. One day, I, I remember when we made this transition initially, we, I, I was, you know, when, when you're raised in the dairy industry, everything you know is dairy. And the more dairy you get into your, your system, the better you are. It was very similar to uh, Colin Campbell's experience when, um, when he was at Cornell. Um, the more you could get in your system, the better. And you believed, you had a firm belief that you needed that to survive and thrive. And I remember the day that I was sitting there at the table and the juxtaposition that came with, with this thought. The thought was... Um, if we continue to eat this, 
we're going to have problems and eventually we're going to die early. <laughs> okay. And I was looking at my little daughter and I remember this thought, you know, you, you, when thoughts like that hit you, those, uh, you know, off the cuff and you're not prepared for them, you end, you tend to react. And I reacted. I don't know as anybody at the table knew it, but I remember this fear gripped my heart. I thought, my daughter is going to suffer if I don't get this stuff completely out of the out of our um, our home. And then as I got up, I immediately I got up, I left the table. And as I left the table, I thought, wait a minute, what are we going to eat in its place? Because we need this to survive. So every, you know, I mean, um, the thoughts are contradicting each other. And I thought, how am I going to do this? I'm, you know, pardon the expression, but damned if you do, damned if you don't. And mm -hmm. I walked across the, the, um, the kitchen and the living room and I thought, I've got to get myself together. I turned around and I looked and there was a big jar of Quaker oatmeal sitting mm -hmm. with the cupboard door open. And I remember thinking, nobody ever died eating oatmeal. It's healthy. And I went over to that cupboard I tell you, I went over to that cupboard and I got that oatmeal and I made oatmeal that day. And you know what? My little girl is thriving as well. They're all thriving. But that was the first time I thought I didn't, I didn't know what tofu was. I didn't know what pea protein powder was. I didn't know. I didn't know any of these things. I didn't know what plant-based was. Nobody had even used the word vegan. Nobody had ever even heard of a vegan. I, I, at least I hadn't at that time. So we get to this place where I'm sitting there and I say, I've just got to feed my family and I've got to, I've got to do something about this. And that was the genesis. So we take that very thinking and we apply it. You fast forward to 2010. Now we're applying it um, to our technology. And I made the decision that day that I made that oatmeal. I said, I am going to feed my family and my children and anybody that wants to eat this food, I am going to feed them the healthiest ingredients that I can with whole plant ingredients so that I can go to bed every night and know that I did the right thing. And I can wake up in the morning about excited about doing it again. And once we established that paradigm of thinking, the technology began to come. We just started applying, frankly, applying a lot of the principles that I'd learned on the farm and applying first mechanical processes and whatnot to solve um, our issues for mass production. And we did it very successfully. We're, we're on like our fourth generation of, um, of uh, technology right now. And, um, it's just uh, it, it's a lot of fun, but but the thing that's important, we are applying the same principle that we applied that day with a bowl of oatmeal. We might use beans and seeds and whatnot to do it today, but it's the same principle. So that's how that's how um, we really developed the technology and whatnot. I like the way you frame that because um, sometimes at least lately when people people are so obsessed with talking about food technology uh tend to talk about it in fairly uh sort of uh open-ended terms uh where where we think about how we can create products um 
that solve for certain um, food needs, whether it is trying to mimic meat or mimic dairy or mimic cheese, but they do not put any rules around the technology. So I guess what you did there, purely out of your commitment to ensuring that the food that you create is going to be as close as possible to its um, how those foods are in nature, um, so that would be minimally processed. So you created a set of rules around which you are yeah. going to now deploy technology. Um, so no matter how much you scaled the production or how many different product lines you went into, and correct me if I got this wrong, but what I'm I'm basically paraphrasing what you said there to mean that you developed a set of of guardrails around yeah. which you would then build food products. And yeah. probably, I'm, I'm guessing from what I see in your products today, those rules or that framework still controls your decision-making mm. uh, around what you produce and how you produce it and what ingredients you use to produce it. It does. It does. You're, you're exactly right. Um, uh, I have uh, some of our team someday, uh, some days they, they, um, uh, we, they get a little frustrated, but we hold those lines and we don't deviate from those lines today. You're going to see our yogurts are going to be debuting here. And, um, these, these are products that we've actually, we've actually even taking those principle, uh, that foundation that we built upon, and we've even expanded a bit to say, we want products that, um, we, every single day we'd be hoping that they would, um, that my, uh, you know, for me personally, for my family, my employees, everybody would be eating these, um, to benefit their health. You're going to see along those lines, like our yogurt as it debuts, it's the first one in the world of its kind. There's never been anything like this. We developed the technology around it just to make that yogurt and several other products around it. Um, but the unique thing and the, the driver is the principle that actuates us to make the decisions that we do. And I can tell you as someone who very recently tried one of your products for the first time, uh, I was a little late to the party, but uh, I was, I actually didn't look at the nutritional label at all. I was interested in trying the product. I tried your nacho uh, cheddar cheese and was was just blown away by the taste and that's what drew me in to begin with and then later learned that it was actually pretty clean label um, and I think that was interesting because I, I almost approach the new products I tend to come across with uh, the taste test first as always mm -hmm. and then then I try to dig deeper because if it fails the taste test then there's no point even <laughs> you know, turning the packaging around because it doesn't matter right so uh, it more than passed the taste test to the extent where I thought I was going to be disappointed looking at the nutritional label and was pleasantly surprised when I found out about your um, sort of your ethos or the principles behind several of your products. And the same goes for your butter and some of your other products I tasted. Initially, was on first bite, was convinced that the only way you got it to taste that way is you probably filled it with a lot of junk, so just to be perfectly honest. And then I was pleasantly surprised to find out that you were kind of the opposite of that. Mm. Um, you know, so I, I think that's interesting. What do you? What do you? Now, having been in the space for uh, over a decade now, from a from a food industry standpoint, 
What do you make? I'm, I'm curious. What do you make of all that has transpired in the plant-based food space over the last several years? Uh, because when you started off, it seemed like you must have felt like the only, the mm. the only crazy one out there trying to trying to crack <laughs> how to make uh, dairy products taste like dairy products yeah. without using yeah. cow's milk or any animal milk. So there's a there's a there's a, the, I can answer that in a couple ways. There's there's um, uh, there's a there's a number of different ways that we can look at food and the future of plant based food. And I can speak uh, from our, our personal, you know, my personal perspective and, and the, um, regarding those principles and the philosophy that drives us to do what we do. I can tell you that internally, it's far more difficult to use whole plant ingredients. It, when you take a butter bean or an oat or a pumpkin seed or a, um, you know, a, a a grain of like raisin wheat, whatever it is, if you're going to use the entire um, uh, the entire plant, then you're going to sit with a host of issues. It's far more difficult because you have to weed through the naturally. I mean, all of the things that occur naturally in that plant, the starches, the the way they are going to gelatinize, the oat is going to gelatinize, all of these different things that you're going to have to take those into account. They make it much more difficult to create a plant-based food um, that is going to mimic whatever you're trying to get to, like dairy, you know, say cream cheese or butter. You mentioned butter. However, there are a lot of advantages to that as well. You can actually use the natural base flavor tones to achieve um, desired results. You can use those natural starches to um, to to um, achieve results. You can use that um, insoluble fiber and all of these things that are dirty words in the manufacturing realm. You can actually use them to your advantage, and the biggest advantage being that the effect that they will have on on our customer who is our life and our family. That's very important to us. That being said, where the industry is tending to go is, is a, a different route, frankly. And um, uh, it does concern me. I, we, were, we were joking one day, um, we were in, a, in an NPD meeting and, I, and we, were, we were laughing about how easy would it be to just be able to take some oil and some water and some texturing agents and some flavor and some salt and things and whiz it up in our process and make and fool everybody's mouth and their taste buds and and um, make them feel like they got something when it's really not. And you, and I've noticed with a lot of these products out there that you take them, you put them on something, but they kind of disappear. There's no body. There's no foundation to them. Um, that's a very easy road to go. There's, there's um, undoubtedly higher margins and whatnot in that. There's, uh, there's um, a lot of opportunities and less work. And it's something that, frankly, you have to fight when you're in this industry because it's becoming a dog-eat-dog -dog industry out there. Pardon the expression. But for us, we have clung to our roots and we cling to them tenaciously. And our future is 
is I'm thinking the more I'm watching this evolve, our future is probably different than the future of many companies that are going to come and go out there. But I think the long road, the strategic view is going to far outweigh uh, the tactical moves that are being made today in these companies. The, um, I think those are very, very important things to consider. And again, for us, it comes back to, uh, can we, can we um, put our hand on our heart, if you will, and know that we're making the right decisions and doing the right things. One last thing that I want to mention while we're talking just about that. Critically important, when we developed our process, I, we had a very different approach and we employ this approach today. Rather than trying to um, um, you know, undo something, redo something, reinvent a wheel, the first question we ask is, what is the wheel that really needs to exist? And that's going to rule a number of things out. And, and I'll give you an example of what I mean with that. As we're, when you come into our plant, um, rather than trying to, um, uh, you know, um, use existing systems, we'll actually say, how can we eliminate a system altogether? And my, my goal for our team is and remains to be a zero waste process. And that is what we have today. Um, we use things like gravity in the place of electricity, every little place that we can in our process. Um, we do a lot of little things that contribute to the bigger picture. And again, when you take that approach, when you want to be um, uh, environmentally responsible, truly responsible, um, truly sustainable, the, the, the essence of true sustainability is that you, maybe you don't use it in the first place. So we apply that thinking to our technologies. But once again, along the same lines, it takes, um, it, it's a longer, harder road. And you do often end up inventing wheels that you may not have had to do had you chosen that easier road. So how have you managed to um, stay the course, uh, hold on to your values and principles and stay rooted in them with these changing tides right over the last decade with uh, uh, this influx of capital in startups that are producing the next alternative to, you know, whatever animal product that exists out there? Uh, how have you managed to keep your 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 business um, growing, keep innovating uh, while not getting? And this is just a, I'm I'm very curious to, for your answer on this question because it can get so tempting to look what's happening around you and feel like you are perhaps missing a wave because you are sort of contrarian in your thinking because of the principles or the values that you hold. Mm. What, I guess some of it must be tactical also in terms of, uh, did you explore other distribution channels? Um, yeah, T tell me more about how the last 10 years with the ups and downs and the sudden rise of the plant-based space, how, how Wayfair has managed to stay uh, grounded in its principles, but mm. continue to find new avenues for your business? I think the first, 
the first um, uh, thing that we learned to do early on was say no. We were approached by, I, I can't tell you how many companies, companies that have fully engaged in this arena that are very successful out there right now um, that approached us. Um, but the first thing we went back to was to say, what are our core principles? Why are we doing this? How are we going to do this tactically? What does this look like for us without violating those principles? And more often than not, it was going to require that we did. And frankly, um, I would rather hang it up than to compromise in that direction. Um, we, we determined to have the greatest impact that we could on as many people as we can um, through the application of, of those right principles that, that, we've, that we've identified. Those might be different for, for many others. But the first thing is to be able to initially say no if you have to. And there is a strong temptation. I remember I went through many times um, uh, where I called my wife and said, honey, uh, I'm looking forward here and starting about here, we're probably going to, you know, get stocked up because I don't think we're going to be able to go buy groceries for a while. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was tough. <laughs> starting businesses when you're in the, the pond with the big guys is very difficult. Um, so that's, that's number one. You just, you know, we had to make up our mind and a lot of people to this day would disagree with me in that thinking. Um, secondly, where you do form relationships, you form them, um, you want strategic partners. We have um, incredible relationships that are actually global and we're building them today. We've got an incredible um, strategic partnership over uh, in, in the Southern Hemisphere. We've got one just north of the United States that are just phenomenal and that, that hold to the same lines, the same standards that, that we've built. And we'll say, okay, let's get that technology over there. Let's, let's begin to expand on those lines. And then thirdly, as much as I hate to say it, you just, uh, there's a lot, I mean, it's a lot of trial and unfortunately error and uh, whether there's more trial than error, I couldn't tell you, I'd have to go back and look, but, but, um, you know, you keep, you know, the old saying, you just keep beating your head against the wall long enough, that wall's going to break. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so unfortunately we, we applied a lot of, of, a lot of that as well, but we were, um, we run a very tight ship. We keep close track of everything we do. We have the best people in the world. I am so proud of our team and our people. And, and, and they, are, they are as committed as every one of us. And, and that makes the difference. And that, so that would be the, the capstone of it all. Find the right people that are committed with you to doing these things and make that clear to them in every single person that you're going to hire, be willing to say no, because it might not be a right fit, you know, if you have to, but don't compromise. And that's, that's really where we, we, you know, that brings us to where we are today. Yeah. And also I noticed one of the things you've done perhaps differently early on, uh, compared to several other, um, 
companies in in your category you've also explored private label partnerships so you know mm. maybe that's one of the reasons why i may have i'm just speaking for myself i may have eaten your products in the past and not realized i was eating something manufactured by wayfair yeah um so can you tell us a little bit more about that and how did that become a focus for you and how big a part of your business is it yeah so so i look at um i have a little different philosophy on private label than some do but but um once again it comes back to looking at those who we identified who would be very good strategic partners we've had i don't know how many have approached us about private label most of them just frankly are not a good fit they have to fit within the criteria that we do they have to be a good strategic partner we have to be aligned you know um you know two it's difficult for two to walk together unless they're agreed so that's first and foremost and then secondly was to is to was simply to take the the principal thinking and say okay how can i expand that and not be selfish with this are there are there um, companies and individuals out there who are who would be a good fit so that we can expand this envelope and for us that's been that's been such a huge blessing just as a company um, I had a number of people that I worked with early on said don't don't you dare do private label um, had a number that said do nothing but private label and there is a there is a balance there's a there's a sweet spot, if you will, there that we have found. And frankly, my desire is to is to expand that footprint even with our branded lines as well. We own a um, or we have a, a, a partnership within the um, uh, the uh, your area there in New York in the Jewish community with a product that is called Parv, and it's been a it's been a really fun, um, uh, fun brand for us to create, and it met a specific niche. So you can you have opportunities to do that through private label as well. Yeah, it's it's interesting. A lot of brands tend not to want to go down that path. I think I'm not going to just say it's all ego that makes people make those decisions, but some of it is. I think people feel very attached to wanting to build a brand identity, and there's good reasons to do that. And I'm sure you can. And, and some people worry that if you go too further down the the private label road, you will, you will, it'll take away from the focus on on building your own brand and consumer focus. Um, and what I think you're trying to do is prove that you can do both, right? You can you can expand your distribution footprint. You can get creative with getting more people to eat your products because that's really why you're in business, right? I'm assuming yeah. is yeah. to get more people to eat the products that you're manufacturing. Um, and if they can uh, do it on by buying a package that has your name on it, that's great. And if not, either way, you're getting people, you're you're achieving your goal, so your mm. intended goal. I think it's, I, I'm always fascinated why so many. It's such a sensitive topic for some brands to get into, um, or they don't want to talk about it because um, it takes away from their focus of brand building and the brand equity that yeah. they're trying to create. Well, interestingly, our even our name, the name Wayfair. Um, and the icon, you know, which we stand by. This is a topic of a much bigger conversation, but but it comes from an ancient model um, that dates back thousands of years 
that incorporates um, well-being for all. And it's about us. It's about a, a, a journey uh, in life that involves food. And if you restrict that to just your brand, you run the risk of restricting your mission. And that was a concern for me. And that's why we we are, and I hope we always will, um, work with co-brands. The other thing that we're, we're just um, working into that we're very excited about, um, we have a number of partnerships out there with, you know, where we're actually, we are ingredients in other products. I will, uh, someday I'll be able to expand on that, where we're going and what we're doing, but we're actually, our um, hours are going into ingredients. And, th- and this is something that's key. For me, it's been key to recognize that we do not have all the answers. There are people out there that that have been inspired to create foods um, that are more, that are more specific to their cultures, to their locales, to to their own palates even. And if we recognize that, then our, we take it as our obligation to help them expand what they do. So there's a few even startups out there that I've helped. Um, through the years to expand and build and help them get going where they are. And they're, they're getting to share the excitement with their own brand. And you know what? Mm-hmm. I, I want to see them do that very thing. That's their passion. That's their dream. That's a gift God gave them, not me. Um, our duty is to help them to get there. And there's a host of ways I- we can do that. Yeah, that takes a lot of self-awareness, right? You kind of uh, are pretty confident on where you stand and what your strengths are. And I think sometimes uh, it takes time to get there for most companies. And at the early stage, everyone wants to somewhat copy the same playbook that perhaps some of the other category leaders have done because it seems like it's the fastest way to scale and achieve proper growth and fulfill all their investors' demands. Um, So... It's the nature of the industry, as you said. It's a, it's, it's a. Sad we have to use that term, but it's a doggy dog, dog world out there at the moment. Yeah, there's no denying it in this space. It yeah. Um, so, what's the future look like for Wayfair? What's next, and what can what can consumers, what can your other business partners expect to see from you from an innovation standpoint, standpoint, from a product standpoint? You mentioned the yogurt, but what else is coming? What should we be on the lookout for? Oh, we've got we've got a we've got a lot in our pipeline. In fact, early on, while we were building the company, we built an incredible amount of of um, you know intellectual property in different thing in different foods to meet every every need. And now it's fun because we're at a place now where we're reaching back into that lockbox, if you will, and saying, "Hey, what do we want to do next?" Well, there's yogurt. Um, you're going to see uh, some of our other uh, cheeses come out on the market. You're going to be, see some fully prepared foods that, n- that have never been done in the world before, at, at least to my knowledge, that are just wonderful foods. A lot of these, I'm very proud to say that, that in fact, um, I would invite you, Neil, if you ever want to try some of them in advance, just come spend time with me in, in Montana and uh, you eat at our table, everything gets prototyped at our kitchen table. <laughs> if it makes it past there, if it makes the criteria, if it meets the criteria to be on our table and, and it passes the test at, at, um, at our table, um, then, th- then it's uh, qualified to go to the next stage in NPD. 
And to that end, you're going to see a host of foods. You're going to see our cheeses. You're going to see uh, the yogurts. We've got um, beverages. We've got we've got a lot of different things, and we have a a world class um, facility right in the middle of the country. It's our own facility, our own technologies, um, and we've got plenty of room to expand. But most importantly. Um, it's our people and it's our team and it's our passion. You'll feel that when you get to meet them. And I'd invite you to come, come see it too one of these days. I'm definitely going to take you up on that. Um, it, I'm, I, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I've been to uh, your part of the country once and um, loved it and didn't, it felt like I needed to spend more time there. I didn't really want to leave. I, I want to bring it back to where we started uh, as a way to close out this conversation. Um, it's very clear that your sort of journey into the world of food and the business of food was was greatly inspired by your own personal and your family's experience with uh, making changes to your diet and lifestyle in response to some uh, health conditions that were plaguing uh, several members of your family. So this is a, this isn't just a business for you. I imagine it's, and I think everything you've said really captures that it is, it is a personal mission. But now it is a mission for your entire team. Mm. You know, we are at a interesting point in our, I mean, you know, in our journey as human beings in this planet at this very time. Uh, as I said, we're in the year twenty twenty two. Whether you look at the food system from a standpoint of sustainability we we desperately need to change the way we're doing things when we look at the nutrition um, quality of most of the foods available uh, it's clear that even that has to change yeah uh, we are you know we're we're feeding the world today not even not even really that well at the cost of destroying our natural resources mm. and at the same time we're doing a terrible job of feeding people healthy, nutritious food that they can thrive on. And that's mm -hmm. only going, if current trends continue and we don't drastically shift our consumption patterns and our food production patterns, it's only going to get worse in the next 10, 20, 30 years. And so I, I say all that because I, I want to make sure uh, I give you some context for this question, but I, I close out my podcast with this one last question. When you succeed, whether as a company or others like you who are focused on getting more people to see the power of whole plant foods um, and the power of using technology with the right um, principles attached to it and rooted in some principles, how we can potentially develop new products uh, that actually deliver on the taste um, factors, but also on the nutritional factors that uh, food should generally deliver on. So when you succeed and when others like you are able to convince more people to eat better and choose whole plant foods as the solution to the health and to their health problems and potentially to many of the problems that are plaguing our our planet and our, and our, and our natural environment, what do you think the food system in the world will look like in the year 2050? Mm, I think it's simple. I think it's a matter of necessity. I think that we have to, um, we're going to have to, whether we like it or not, it's interesting, the progression of events, how oftentimes 
um, things have to come to a crisis before intervention can be marked. And um, uh, I think we are going to be approaching a crisis. It's, it's odd because right now, um, I just was looking this morning, I mean, I, um, the meat and the, the dairy industry is actually growing. Um, in fact, it's unprecedented growth right now that we're finding. There's, there's um, a, a, even a bit of a backlash even to the plant-based um, culture right now, which is very sad. But as we progress and the more people that, that we find here, it just comes down to very simple principles regarding um, the way food is going to be raised. Plants have the ability to sustainably feed a planet with far more people than we have right now. There is, there would not be a, um, the food shortages and the crisis, the, and a lot of the environmental crisis that, that we hear of today, if, if we would um, uh, adopt right principles regarding plants and plant foods and, and things like that. We will have to go to um, truly um, net zero waste manufacturing systems and whatnot. When you're taking um, foods and you're and you're treating them with with um, chemicals like ammonia and whatnot, um, that is not sustainable. There's a there's a problem. You're going to hit that proverbial wall at some point, and I think it's a matter of necessity. Um, the question I'm asking is how much pain do we want to endure before we really start making some changes? The second question I ask is what can I do? What can Wayfair do? What can our team do to make a positive contribution to mitigate that risk and, and before, before we hit that wall, if you will? Well, Kelly, I think you're definitely helping to uh, steer us on the right course and make sure that we stand a fighting chance to leave a planet for future generations and a food system for future generations that actually nourishes us. Mm. Um, I appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast and sh not only sharing what Wayfair is doing, but also sharing um, your own personal story and the story of your family and what inspired you to embark on the work you're doing today. Uh, thank you for mm. being on. Well, thank you. Thank you, Neil. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Neil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, all you have to do is subscribe to the show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. 
From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.